Turn, if you would, to the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew. My goal was to cover a chapter in about two weeks, and I'm behind. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. My children gave me a subscription to the Salsa of the Month Club. I didn't make this up. Well, I had an interesting experience yesterday afternoon. At 4 o'clock, I was sitting in McDonald's in Parsons, Kansas, working on my lesson. So I had my Bible open, and I'm sitting there reading it, and this young man walks up to me and just kind of stands there, and he says, are you a man of the word? I said, yes. (laughs) I said, what can I do for you? He said, I'd like to sit down and talk with you. I said, okay. So we talked for an hour about knowing the will of God, about how to understand who false teachers are. He was a little messed up. I said a prayer for him, and an hour later he says, I've got to go. And he left, so it was kind of weird. And then I got up and drove home from Kansas. So, chapter 12 of the book of Matthew. We continue our study through the book. If you remember, last week we talked about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We talked about the unpardonable sin. And the fact there are lots of people who are worried and concerned that somehow they have committed the unpardonable sin. My easy answer is, if you're worried that you have committed it, you probably haven't committed it. Because if you had committed it, you wouldn't be worrying about it. That's the easy answer. I think what it means, the unpardonable sin is ultimately telling no to the Holy Spirit. As we teach, as we present the gospel to people, the Holy Spirit comes to them and says, why don't you believe this? And they can say no to us all day long. But if they continue to say no, continue to say no to the Holy Spirit, there is no plan B. When they die, when they go to judgment, they're not going to be able to say, I know the Holy Spirit asked, but I was waiting for someone else. There is no plan B. And I believe that that is the unpardonable sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit by saying no, no, no. So, Jesus is in the midst of a discussion with the Pharisees. Remember, they first came up and attacked him regarding his disciples eating grain, picking grain on the Sabbath day, and then there was a discussion about healing on the Sabbath and can you do it, and that's why he turned on them and said, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And we continue in that vein today with verse 33. Either, yes, go ahead. Well, his question is, what if you're a Christian and you become an atheist? My understanding from the scripture is that if you are truly a believer, you will not fall away. Now, there are lots of people who walk down the aisle in a church, they're raised in a church, they think they're a believer, and when push comes to shove, they walk away from it. We're actually going to see this in one of the parables in the upcoming weeks, 
where we talk about the sower throwing the seed, and some of it, the thorns, the worries and cares of this world just choke it out, and they walk away. And the question is, and this is a question because you can argue both sides of it, the question is, were they saved and lost their salvation, or were they never saved to begin with? And my argument would be that they were never saved to begin with. And we'll talk about that in the upcoming weeks. So, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. Now, we've just kind of jumped to the middle of the fight right there. Later, we're going to have a whole chapter where he continually refers to them as a brood of vipers. What is a brood of vipers? It's a pit of snakes. Okay? You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's start with that last verse before we get into too much trouble. By your words you are justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Does this mean that our words create our justification? They are the cause of our justification. I say this magic formula, whatever it is, Jesus is Lord, I'm sorry for my... Whatever it is, I say these words, and those words produce my justification. Well, the answer to that is no. What produces our justification is the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can sit up here and mumble things all day long, and it will not save us. It's just not going to do it. Okay, then what does it mean when it says, by our words we are justified, or by our words we are condemned? Back to the beginning of the passage. A good tree... You ready for this? This is real hard. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. If I want apples, I don't go to an orchard of orange trees looking for an apple. I go to an apple tree looking for apples. If I want good fruit, I start with a good tree. Why is he telling us this? The heart is the center of who we really are. To a Jewish audience, it would be the mind, the will, and the emotions. This defines who you are. But guess what? I cannot see your heart. I see indications of your heart, but I don't see your heart. Now, God sees the heart. More about that in just a moment. What I do see or what comes out of that heart of good or that heart of evil. And how is that most predominantly displayed? Through the words of our mouth. So, if I have good things in my heart, 
good treasures, is what this passage says. I am going to speak, I am going to do good things. But if I have evil and wicked things in my heart, what's going to come out? Evil words. Huh. Remember the context that we're dealing with here. The Pharisees are blaspheming, word, 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 the Holy Spirit and Jesus because they are denying who he is. In fact, they are working to destroy him. Those are the words that we saw two lessons ago where we ended up. They went off to figure out how to destroy them. Their words were condemning them because the words were an indicator of what was in their heart. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Does that mean that pagans, unbelievers, can't say good things? Okay? Does that mean believers will always say good things? People are shaking their heads. They know some believers. Then what's the point? If an unbeliever can say good things and a believer can say wretched things, what does this passage mean? Well, I'll give you the easy answer. Maybe those people really aren't believers. Oh, I didn't say that. That sounds a little bit judgmental. That's not my problem, okay? As I say in here repeatedly, I am in no position to judge anyone's salvation. I do know on the authority of the scripture, though, that there are certain things that are indicators, as I say, red warning flags, that maybe you aren't where you ought to be. If you have a spirit of bitterness that is continually spewing out bitter and condescending and evil words, don't think that just because you walked down an aisle at one point in history you are necessarily saved. It's just a warning. It is an indicator that things may not be what you think they are. So that's one possible answer. But let's acknowledge the other fact that even though we are believers, the scripture still says we are still sinners. Otherwise, we wouldn't need that, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. If he'd already justified them all, which he has in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't need to repent all the time. But guess what? I do. I say words that are hurtful and harmful, and I go back and I say, I'm sorry I did that. As we've said in here before, you know, you can throw the pig into the mud, and you can throw the cat into the mud. They're both going to be muddy. But the cat's going to try to get out of it as fast as they can and clean themselves off. The pig's going to enjoy it. If you are a believer, a so-called believer, and you enjoy wallowing in the mud with the pig, maybe you're a pig. That's the picture. We need to understand that the words that come out of our mouth are very important. 
not because of the exact words, although the words are important, but they're important because what they represent the condition of our heart to be. And once again, he's attacking, he's dealing with the Pharisees at this point. The Pharisees are using their words to condemn Jesus. Not just to condemn him, they're saying he's from the devil. He is a tool of the devil and he's trying to lead the people astray and this is what they're saying. Now, when we talk about what we're saying, you have a question? Mm-hmm. Yep. Even as believers, his comment is we live in a me-oriented society, and even we as believers have a tendency to absorb the society in which we live, and so we just do our own thing just like everybody else does their own thing. But what we need to be doing is continually going to the Scripture, continually pleading with the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us so that we can produce good fruit, which in this case are good words coming out of our mouth. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The Scripture is very clear. Those are the two choices. But what about the unbelieving person who says good things? I mean, I believe that there are probably unbelieving sons today who will tell their fathers, I love you, happy Father's Day, and they'll mean it. They'll be very sincere. They'll be very loving. Well, what more could we ask from them, right? Ultimately... What our lips exist for, ready for this? Our lips exist to bring praise and honor to God. Now, if that is the standard by which ultimately we're going to be judged, and we'll have a little bit more about this in just a moment when we talk about idle words, if that is the standard, then the unbeliever cannot do that. When I tell my father I love you, but I'm doing it from an unbelieving heart, I am not honoring the father by doing that because I'm rejecting the father, the father, when I do that. I'm saying that, you know, we just happened to evolve along and we just came along and I'm glad you were my biological father, more power to you. We are not giving glory and honor to God the Father. And when we're not giving glory and honor to the Father, our words demonstrate the condition of our heart. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. I mean, that's a pretty strong thing to tell them, right? There's a pit of snakes, and that's your picture. That's who you are. You think that you are the savior of the people. You are the holy people going around instructing the people how to live their lives. And all you are 
are vipers looking for those you can kill. A lot more on that later. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart, the center of our being, our mind, will, and emotion. Our heart is either committed to God with our mind, our will, and emotion. We had lots of discussions about this in the past, how our mind seeks after the things of God, our heart seeks after, I mean, our will seeks after the things of God, our emotions are directed by the movement of the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, then inside of you is this treasure of good things, this treasure of things that you've learned from the Scripture, that God has revealed to you, that God has shown you in life, and out of that abundance... You talk to other people. You share with them what God has given to you. Because he didn't give it to you for you to lock in a steel box and store away so that nobody could mess with it. He gave it to you so you could share it. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. It's pretty clear. In fact, it's real clear. It's more clear than we want it to be. We want to live in that, well, they're really a nice person. I know they don't go to church, they don't talk about God, they don't like Jesus, they think it's all make-believe, but they're nice people. And they may be in human terms. They may be the best of neighbors. But when we talk in just a moment about Judgment Day, God is not going to stand before them on Judgment Day and say, yeah, you really did keep your your yard mowed well. And that really looked good to the neighbors. And I'm all in favor of mowing your yard, by the way. I'm all in favor of my neighbors mowing their yard. Half of mine are relatives, but that's a whole different subject. My mother, who lives in my backyard, kind of comments every once in a while about the state of my yard, but that's a whole different topic. (laughs) It is kind of fun, though, when your mother mows your yard for you. (laughs) But she has this riding tractor that she just loves. She just starts going, and she never stops. But that's a whole different topic. What is the point? Yes, you're doing all these nice, civil things, but when you get to judgment, What is the question going to be? What did you do for the kingdom? What did you do with Jesus Christ? And if the answer is, I said he was the son of the devil, I tried to destroy him, I did everything I could to stop him, why do you think God's going to say, yeah, but you're a pretty nice guy anyway, come on in. It's not going to happen. We, and I, I think in an interpersonal relationship sense, it makes sense. We want to be nice to everybody, and we want other people to be nice to us. But we need to understand that in God's perspective, there are those who hear the word, build their house on the rock, and survive. And there are those who hear the word, build their house on the sand because they don't do what they hear 
and great is the collapse that comes. We need to understand that. We need to believe that what God tells us is true. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Oh, shoot. Years, years ago, I, we were working through the book of Proverbs. I was doing a topical study of the book of Proverbs, and I had a whole lesson on the tongue, the words that come up out of our mouths. And there are so many Proverbs that deal with the words that come out of our mouth, it's just unbelievable. So I finished that, and just to make sure the class understood that this wasn't just an Old Testament thing, I read this verse. And I remember this very clearly because I had a nice, sweet lady tell me, she raised her hand and said, but that doesn't apply to us because we're believers. Huh. Well, it is in the scripture. There, nowhere in this context does it say, but this doesn't apply to you. What does it mean to be judged for every careless word? First, we have to understand what a careless word is. I mean, I am hammering and I whack my thumb and out comes a wonderful expletive. Okay, that's a careless word, I would think. You know, it just kind of popped out there. My son and I, years ago, went and saw some real Navy SEAL, bang, bang, shoot em up movie, and the people are cussing all over the time, all over the place. And I tell my son after the movie, you know, if I'm getting shot at and falling off cliffs, I might say some bad words too. Just say. Is that what is meant by an idle word? Just a word that just kind of popped out there. You know, I didn't have any control of it. It just happened. The King James says idle word. What does that mean? Over in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's listing off all the bad things, remember? Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, blah, 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 blah. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking. These are all sins of the mouth. Word sins, as one commentator referred to them. Foolish talk, idle words, careless words. What does that mean? What did we just say a while ago about why God gave us a tongue to begin with? To bring glory and honor to God. Does that mean we spend all of our time preaching? No. I dare say there's a lot of preaching out there that doesn't bring that much glory and honor to God. But when we offer words of encouragement, we are bringing glory and honor to God. Speak edifying words. When I tell a joke that lightens up the mood, I am bringing glory and honor to God. But if all I'm talking about all my life are things that don't matter, the question is, what does that say about the condition of my heart? The Holy Spirit should season everything that we say. 
Once again, that doesn't mean it all has to be Christian talk. Don't break into your King James voice thinking that somehow that means you're speaking the words of God. What it does mean is that when you enter a situation and everybody's kind of angry, you're not. When everybody's apprehensive, you're not. I am continually amazed. We talk about this when we do our marriage mentoring. You know, I get into a situation and I have a tendency to use very extreme words. I used to joke about my sisters. They were, neither, they were never a little bit cold or a little bit hot. They were freezing or they were burning up. And that's the way we are. Oh, I hate this place. You may not like it, but we use extreme words. And in marriage, that will kill you. In life, it will kill you. But we all do it. Oh, that politician is a tool of the devil. Probably not. Could be. I don't know. Who are we to tell? Just don't use words as weapons, which is exactly what they were doing with Jesus. Careless words are words that do not take into account the Spirit of God in you. I mean, if people ask for directions, you give them directions, but you do it to the glory and honor of God. If people need instructions, you give them instructions. If people need encouragement, you give them encouragement. And if you don't, what are you filling your words with? You're just mouthing things that have no value. It should be, and it takes, it takes training. You have to teach yourself to do it. It's like an old science fiction book I read one time. He said, human beings really have absolutely nothing to say. We just keep practicing in case someday we do have something important to say. <laughs> we'll know how to do it. But we as believers should be encouraging one another with our words. I'm in the process of rereading uh, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, Go read it, and when you finish it, read it again. Fabulous book. But I'm always amazed in the book. You know, he goes through these trials and tribulations. He just finished fighting the dragon. And they meet up, the believers, the people on the road, and they talk about what they've been through. What are the struggles that you've gone through? How did God protect you? How did you make it through? And they talk about that stuff. And I just find that amazing. Remember, God is going to judge you on the words that come out of your mouth. Why? Because the, the words demonstrate the condition of your heart. They are not the things that are going to save you. You can't say the right words long enough to be saved. God will save you. Jesus will save you. Your words are simply the indicators of what is in your heart. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, first off, they call him teacher. They're buttering him up. My understanding, I could be wrong, 
my understanding is they're not doing this with a sincere heart. They're doing it to see if they can trap him. Good teacher, we need a sign. Let's back up a little bit. Jesus has been healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the blind to see, curing leprosy. And they want a sign. I was reading through this Philip Yancey book this week. The Israelites gave ample proof that signs may only addict us to signs, not to God. He's talking about the nation of Israel in captivity in Egypt. Here shows up this guy named Moses. He goes to Pharaoh and he does ten miraculous things, plagues. We're talking locusts, frogs, the water turns to blood. We're talking the firstborn die, except for the houses that have the blood on the doorpost. Then they leave there. They're on their way out of the country, and Pharaoh changes his mind. And they go, oh no, we're doomed. And the water opens, and they walk through. Can you imagine what that would have been like? There's water over here. There's water over there. You know, there's some indication when they entered the promised land and the river stopped, there's some indication that it just kind of backed up up there somewhere. I'm not sure this one, it backed up anywhere. I think it just opened. And they walked through. Not only did they walk through, it was dry ground. And they get to the other side. And they're starving to death. Oh, why'd you bring... And God brought them food. Every day he brought them food. Manna, quail... And then there's this lightning bolts and all this stuff, and Moses goes up on the mountain. And he's gone for 40 days. And what do they do? They build a calf and start worshiping. All the signs in the world were given to them. And the moment Moses walks off the stage, woof, let's start worshiping something else. What does this mean? It means the human heart craves for signs and then ignores every one of them. And they come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign that we would know who you really are. But he answered them. And <laughs> He's going to give them a sign. He's going to talk about it. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a miraculous sign instead of seeking God. I understand the word evil. Yes, go ahead. Uh-huh. It's all there. I think it really happened. The Exodus. Evil I can understand, okay? An evil generation. Why adulterous? I mean, of all the sins you could pick, why pick that one? Well, if you remember the prophets, they talk about God 
and the bride in the covenant relationship. And when the prophets want to talk about the nation of Israel going berserk, about them seeking after idols, what do they say? They're out there looking for harlots, prostitutes. They're looking for love in all the wrong places. Why? Because they have rejected their first love, which was God. And they went seeking after something else. Jesus looks at him and says, you are an evil and adulterous generation. Because while God was clearly revealed to you in the scriptures of the Old Testament, while God is clearly revealed to you in the creation itself, see Romans chapter 1, while all that was true, you went seeking after something else. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, if you're me, and I, I mean, if, if I were here, I'd be going, uh, Jonah? That's a strange analogy to pick up. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Shall we go back and look at the book of Jonah for just a smidgen of time? You know the story, right? Jonah was a prophet. It's easy to be a prophet when you're in your hometown. And God comes to him and says, I've got this city over here in Nineveh, and I'm going to destroy it. Go tell them. Now, you're Jonah, and you think, why would I do that? If you're going to destroy them, just destroy them. Simple, right? And if I tell them, they're going to destroy me. You know, Nineveh's not the God-fearing part of the world. I mean, it's knee-deep in pagan worship. They're seeking after their own gods. They are, what was the word that was used here? Evil people. They had turned their backs on God, and God said to Jonah, go preach to them. And he goes, no. So, uh, let's see if I can get this straight. Um, Nineveh's this direction. I think I'll get on a boat and go this direction. Okay? He goes down to the port. What's the first ship? Heading towards Spain. Sounds great to me. Spain is a long way from Nineveh. Nineveh would be somewhere around, you know, where Iraq is today. I don't know. Out that direction. So he gets on the boat. But God isn't done with him. So the storm comes up. Horrible storm. The crew is just anxious. They, were, they start throwing the stuff off the ship. And if you're a merchant, that means things are pretty bad. You're throwing away all your profit just to save your life. So they cast lots. Good old biblical way of doing it. They draw numbers. They, pick, you know, they cast lots to determine who is causing this. And guess what? Jonah's the guy. And they turned to Jonah and go, what have you done? And he said, I really ticked off my God by running away from him. Now, I always find it interesting 
They continue to fight to save the ship. God's revealed what they need to do. But even good pagans don't want to throw somebody over the side of a ship just to save their own skin. And Jonah finally says, throw me over. And they throw him over. Calm seas, as far as you can see. Kind of like Jesus, right? He speaks to the storm, the storm stops. Same kind of thing. Wow. It would be interesting to have a history of what happened to the crew of that ship. That's a whole different story, though. Jonah, on the other hand, is in the water. And up comes the big fish and swallows him whole. Now, people kind of wonder where this fish come from. This is my thinking. This is weird. This has nothing to do with biblical inerrancy, okay? I think four months before, <laughs> Jesus, I mean, God told some whale somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I've got a job for you. <laughs> That's just my speculation, okay? I've got a job for you. Go this way. And the fish is swimming along, minding its own business, opens its mouth to get some food, and whoop, in goes Jonah. And Jonah is in the belly of the well for three days, alive. Question, what do you think about when you're in the belly of a well? Well, there's no getting out. You, you, you have no power over it. You're thinking, maybe I should have gone to Nineveh. And you pray to God. God hears your prayer. And the fish, who I believe has been sailing the Mediterranean to the other end, spits him out. I'll assume he came out that end. <laughs> spits him out. He gets up on the shore, he washes himself off, and he, what does he say? I'm going to Nineveh. Three days he was in the belly of the whale until he decided to do the will of the Father. And he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches what may be the shortest sermon in the Bible. It's eight words long in the ESV. He basically says, you're toast. That's my two-word version of it. He doesn't tell them to repent. He doesn't. You're going to die. You're a wicked, evil nation, and you're going to die. That was the message. Now, they repent. And to make a long story short, that really ticks off Jonah. Go figure that one. So, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now remember how Jews count days. If I've got an hour of today, today's a day. Okay? So he was buried in the afternoon on Friday. That's a day. He was in the tomb on Saturday. That's two days. He was raised from the dead the morning of the third day. That's three days. Three days in the well. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. We've seen this before, right? Where he's talked about hardened pagan cities 
where he talked about Sodom will rise up and look at you and go, are you nuts? We had this much revelation and we rejected it. You had God walking in your midst doing miraculous deeds and you rejected him? Are you nuts? Jonah came to Nineveh and spoke eight words and they repented. And here Jesus is preaching to God's chosen people and they are rejecting it. And Jesus says, Nineveh is going to rise up and condemn you because you did not respond to the gospel that you heard. Now we look at this and we become concerned about those people over there, right? Those people living in this country who have heard the gospel repeatedly. I mean, you can start pushing buttons on the radio and you hear sermons. I'm driving home last night from Kansas and I'm listening to sermons that just randomly pushing buttons on the radio, right? People go to church for weddings, for funerals. They go to church because their parents made them go. They have heard the gospel and they've said no. And that's important. We need to remember that. But what we really need to remember is that we may be that person. We may be that person who hears the words and say, oh, that was very well spoken. I think I'll go do my own thing. And off we go and we live a life like every other nice, nice Christian American does. And Jesus says, Nineveh, is going to rise up because when the word of God was preached to them, eight words, they repented. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something, I always thought that was an interesting word. He didn't say someone, he said something greater than Jonah is here. Now, we know the answer to this, right? If you're one of the Pharisees listening to this, I mean, kind of put yourself in there. This doesn't make any sense at all. This is a prophecy that Jesus is making that is going to make sense in three years. In two or three years, when they crucify him and he is raised from the dead, somebody's going to say, do you remember when we were out there condemning him and he said something about being in the earth for three days? I think it just happened. That's what this prophecy is for. And when they think that, what they're supposed to think next is something greater than Jonah was there. And what was that something? That something was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God. Something greater. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Down in the south somewhere, depending on which map you look at, the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon because she had heard about his wisdom. This is the smartest guy on the planet. And she didn't want to send her scouts to look at him or her ministers to look at him. She wanted to see if it was true. She was a devout pagan from somewhere. And she came and she introduced herself to Solomon and she was amazed. How he directed his country. The wealth that he had accumulated. She was amazed at the wisdom that he had. And I suppose he told her where it came from. I asked God and he gave it to me. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. She is going to stand up and condemn this generation because something greater than Solomon is in their presence. And who is that? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God. And what are they doing? They're trying to figure out how to destroy him. So, we made it through half the lesson. That's pretty normal. What is the point of all of this? Let's just get it out of the way. We've got to say it. If what's coming out of your life is bad fruit, it is an indicator of a bad heart. Okay? It just is. You can sit there and moan and groan and try through your own efforts to produce good fruit, and it's not going to work if God has not transformed your heart. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Now, elsewhere we have the analogy that Jesus uses of he is the branch and we are the vines hanging off the... No, he's the vine, we're the branches hanging off of him. Who is the source of our strength? I can sit here and try and try and try and grunt and groan to do good things on my own and I need to turn to God and say transform my heart if we are believers we do need to produce good fruit our words are important go home today and encourage somebody encourage something encourage the dog I mean <laughs> think tomorrow how your words can reflect glory and honor to God. You go, that sounds kind of awkward. Yeah, it probably will be a little awkward until you get used to it. Don't make it up. Just allow God to use you to do it. Trust me. I told you several months ago, right, about the person in the half-price bookstore that I probably should have talked to and I didn't. So what am I going to do in McDonald's yesterday when this guy comes up and says, I want to talk to you? I'm going to say yes. I don't know if I did him any good at all. 
but I'd talk to him for an hour. The rest of it's God's problem. And guess what? He's a really big God. He'll take care of his part of it. Use your words to give encouragement and love to other people. And remember, an evil and adulterous generation wants miraculous signs, which is kind of weird because Jesus is doing miraculous signs. But all they wanted was the show. They weren't going to follow Jesus. He could have pulled rabbits out of a hat until eternity was over. And they wouldn't have believed. Why? Because an evil heart produces evil words, and evil words ask for a sign so that they condemn the person giving the sign. What does that mean for us? We don't want to be that evil, adulterous generation. We want to be that generation that reads the scripture, that understands it, that appreciates the signs that God has given us. This book, Disappointment with God, it's all about, I want God to straighten out all my problems, and he doesn't do it. What do I do? Well, you trust God. Is that the easy answer? Nope, that's the hard answer. That's why it's called faith. So, God's given us the sign. For three days, Jesus was in the belly of the earth in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the well. And after three days, he was raised from the dead to provide us with salvation. That is the sign. But it's more than a sign. It is the provision for our salvation. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided us everything that we need. I pray, Lord, that we, that we would speak words of kindness to each other. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.